Welcome to The Mother Whelm. This is a podcast for mothers and parents to safely share the challenges and triumphs of motherhood, shed light on taboos, and celebrate everyday victories. I'm your host Bronwyn, and I'm here to talk to you about all things motherhood, the miraculous parts and the overwhelming parts, the ones that make you wonder how you got here, and those that make you realise you're exactly where you should be. This podcast is produced on Darug and Gundungara country, land that has been the home of mothering and storytelling for tens of thousands of years. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the Darug and Gundungara elders, past, present and emerging as the traditional custodians of this land. On today's episode, we are joined by Georgia, my co-host on the Australian VBAC Stories podcast, who walks us through her hard-fought and hard-won breastfeeding journeys, the loneliness of new motherhood, and the importance of building a community of like-minded mums. Let's begin. Thank you so much for joining us today, Georgia. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Can you start us off by telling us who is in your family? Yeah, sure. So I have two girls, two daughters. Um, They are almost four and almost two. And I have a husband, Joel, um, who is a theatre nurse, and me. Beautiful. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit about what you were like before you became a mother? It's such a tricky one, I think, because very hard to differentiate, yeah, who you were before, I think. But basically I was, so I was 26 when I had my first Luna. So prior to that, I studied graphic design, very creative and always really wanted to be a mum. I wanted kids, like I wanted to have a baby for years and years before we actually had a baby. But prior to to that, um, Joel and I, my husband, we met when I was 19 and I was absolutely obsessed. You know, we were obsessed with each other, really codependent <laughs> there, um, did everything together. And so my identity was yeah, creative graphic designer. I was definitely a go-getter because at one point I was working part-time or casual. I was doing an internship. I was doing uni all at the same time. Mm. And I still managed to have a pretty good social life prior to kids. Or Joel and I, if I didn't have a huge circle of friends, because I I didn't, we still managed to find plenty of time to do what we wanted to do, you know, go out to dinners movies or huge movie fanatics um, mm-hmm. before COVID kind of took that away. <laughs> um, going to the movies. Yeah, had a pretty kind of full life, but always thinking, when are we going to have a baby? And mm. huge romantic, like I'm a massive romantic. And I think that, yeah, the idea of having my, at the time, boyfriend from a young age and we like very committed, very young. And I just thought this is the one. And yeah, I guess that's kind of a a good explanation. So I feel like yeah. I'm just going to keep rambling until no, I, love- I find a <laughs> Now I want to, I want to ask, how did you and Joel meet? Because I love those kind of stories about how I love to hear how people get together. I mean, this Me is it's a, not a relationship podcast. It's a motherhood pro- podcast, but I feel like it's all intertwined, but, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. So we actually went to school together, but we never really spoke in school. Mm. He was a year above me. And I, and he was like really good looking. He was like that (laughs) guy in school that was like that really good looking popular guy. (laughs) 
but he was never like he was always shy always like kind of yeah never like that sort of um extroverted one just sweet like clearly a very sweet kid or at the time <laughs> guy um and so I always thought oh that like he's really um gorgeous oh blah 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 whatever never thought never thought to speak to him and then and you know what it's like when they're in a year above you it's like they're like so much older yeah um <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, I could never speak to them. Yeah, so we never really spoke in school. Um, he maintains that he always knew who I was and thought I was cute, but I mm-hmm. call bullshit on that. I don't think he knew who I was. From the age of 18 to 19, I was like massive into going out with friends, you know, dancing, mm-hmm. clubbing, that kind of stuff. And about a year in, we all happened to go out together one time. He sort of was clearly interested and I just thought there's no way this guy's interested in me this is Joel from like this is no way (laughs) anyway he um yeah he just asked for my number and that was pretty much it Mm. and it's funny because I think I always say to like my like I've got a sister and like his sister's a little like quite a bit younger and whenever I'm giving her like advice about guys and stuff and I say like it with Joel and I it just felt easy it just felt like he wanted be with me and I wanted to be with him immediately there was no sort of like oh like does this guy like me or not Mm. it's like okay so what are we doing every day and then yeah we sort of yeah you know like one or two dates and then we just saw each other every day pretty much and Mm. that was that was it yeah (laughs) that was beautiful thank you for sharing that so you mentioned that you had always wanted to be a mother but what were your expectations of motherhood before you had children I feel like I knew that it would be challenging and I knew that it would mean the end of, not the end, but the next chapter of our lives, of my life. I knew that everything would change, but obviously not to the extent that obviously you you understand once you're actually in it. Mm. But I was aware that it would mean that this would be the next, yeah, the next chapter. But I was really excited about that. You know, Joel and I, we had bought a house and we got engaged and got married. And it was like, obviously love being married to him and him being my husband, but it was not a priority for me as much as Mm. having children. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas for Joel, it was very much that he he did want to be married. Mm. which is nice like in hindsight I look back and for me it's like I love having the same last name as my girls because I didn't have that with my mum for Mm. quite a long time my parents split up when I was about I think not even two Mm. so yeah my expectation came very much from my own experience with my own mother Mm -hmm. in some ways my mum and I were incredibly close and Upon reflection after having kids, a lot of it was very dysfunctional, but it was very much her and I kind of against the world type mm. type thing. And so at the time when I was before having kids, I really wanted that closeness as well. I wanted to feel like I had this really special relationship with my kids. So I was ready to sort of like jump in and just dedicate everything to my kids and I had a bit of a tricky childhood. I was very sort of um, tumultuous. I had, like, we moved a lot. I moved, I went to four primary schools and four high schools. <laughs> yeah, wow. So it was like, yeah, we moved a lot and I had, like, I had a stepdad who would be in and out of our lives constantly. I didn't know what to expect. I sort of, you know, I couldn't necessarily rely on what my parents said. Mm. It was very much like 
they would say something and, you know, the next day or the next week, it wouldn't be the case. It would change. Right. So it wasn't stable at all. But I think as well, because my parents, like my mum and my stepdad had this like really volatile relationship, I was very much the confidant. So it was like mm. sort of this expectation that now I reflect upon and, and I know that it it was a burden for a child. Yeah. But I think at the time going into having kids, it was like, oh, I just really want that closeness and that bond, which is mm. <laughs> so funny to say now because the way that I think about those things has changed like huge, like hugely. But yeah, like I said, ready to really just dedicate everything and, and wanted to do a really good job, like wanted to be the mum of the century. Yeah. <laughs> like took my own experience and thought, even though we were close, my mum and I, I did know that there were things that I wanted to do differently, like yeah. very differently. One of those things was very much about choosing a partner that was like completely different from mm-hmm. my own experience, like my own father and um, stepdad. And so when I decided I wanted to have children with Joel, I was like, all right, I'm having children with this man. He, This is the one I'm choosing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, I love him for myself. <laughs> but also it's like this is the one the person I want to be the father of my children and so I was really confident going in thinking my kids are going to have this experience that was just so different to Mm -hmm. what I had and that's what I'm willing to give them and I will just do anything to make that happen. It seems like there's this whole generation of women trying really hard to break cycles Mm -hmm. It's you can't really become a parent without thinking about the impact you're going to have and your own childhood and how you were parented and you know whether you want to do similar things or if you want to completely change. You talked about like you had this idea of wanting to be like the best mother. What did that look like or what did you think that would mean before you had your babies? For me, it meant really putting them first, like mm-hmm. putting their needs completely before my own. I guess, th- yeah, thinking about everything that I wanted to do or the way I wanted to do things, kids first, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Considering them first and making sure that whatever I did, you know, considering the impact that it would have long term. And mm. because, you know, like having come from this household where we were moving constantly and everything was incredibly tumultuous, like I obviously reflect on that now, knowing how much it's affected me even now, you know, 25 years later. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what it was. It's like knowing that everything that I do could impact them. And I guess that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself (laughs) (laughs) upon reflection, you know, like I have to do everything right because Mm -hmm. I know how much that can fuck someone up. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, is this a swearing podcast? Of course it is. (laughs) Of course it is. (laughs) Of course. Good, good, good. Um, Yeah, I know. Yeah. And also... The other thing too is I'll say, which I think I think is relevant, is that with Joel, um, I mean, we've been together since I was so young, so I think our stories are so obviously intertwined, as they are for any any couple, I guess. But he's, he came from a family which was very much sort of like, you know, the perfect nuclear family. Yeah, parents still together. He's one of five siblings. You know, um, mum stayed at home until like, and he was 20 years old. Um, so very much that sort of like what a families are meant to be, not mm. dysfunctional at all. So when I chose to, you know, decided that he would be the one that I want to have kids with, 
for me, the idea that he came from this super functional, you know, ideal family was, yeah, in, like it was great to me because I was like, well, he's going to bring all those amazing ideals that I never got to have. So you had this idea of what motherhood would look like and that there was such a thing as perfect motherhood or being the perfect mother. I feel like I thought that if I did everything the way that I was anticipating that I would, and if I did a good enough job, that everything would turn out well and my kids would be happy mm-hmm. and it's basically kind of just mostly under your control, <laughs> um, which I think is something that a lot of people, especially in like this modern society we have, which really values productivity and I think growing up in a world where, you know, women are encouraged to do everything that men can do, women can be, you know, career people, it sort of is great in so many ways. But at the same time, it's kind of, it makes, I think, a lot of women, or made me think that, you know, motherhood was just another task or another sort of like something like your career where basically if you do everything right and you work hard and you come from a really good place, then you'll be really good at it. And yes, there may be challenges, but all in all, it will be a positive experience, Mm. which yes, I think, as I said before, it's like, until you're in it, that makes sense that it would be like that, you know, until you're in it. And then you realize that you cannot control everything and that, yes, it's not just X. A plus B equals C. <laughs> mm. Can you think of a moment where you where you kind of had that realization that even if you're doing any everything quote unquote right, or you know doing all the things that you you want to do, that it still can just be a bit of a mess? I think the first moment that happened was when I brought Luna home, my first from hospital, and I really struggled to breastfeed mm. and. Interestingly enough, I am a bit of a wing it person in general. So maybe I can kind of think back to like being in school. I was one of those people that always had, and this is going to sound like I'm blowing my own horn here, but natural talent for things that I wanted to do. So maybe it's, maybe I, maybe I chose to do things that I had a natural talent for anyway. Maybe I just... I'm not even, I'm not really sure, but my teachers would always say, oh, she's got so much, you know, natural talent. If she really, if she just applied herself, imagine how great she would be. (laughs) But all I heard was you've got natural talent. You don't (laughs) need to work hard. (laughs) So I'm not one of those people. (laughs) So I'm not one of those people that, sorry, Mike's probably can't hear me with the um, microphone. I'm not one of those people that was like, I'll study, study, study and work really really hard and get a result I was one of those people that was like coasting through you know got pretty good results um in school always like was always pretty top of the class so yeah always got pretty good results in school you know same with uni I went into I got a job pretty much the first internship I applied for got a job there that was like full-time. It all just comes back to the fact that I was very happy winging things. Things had seemed to work out pretty well if I did that. And being, I don't know if you believe in this stuff, but being like a very typical Pisces, (laughs) (laughs) 
very sort of like intuitive, emotional, and like very impulsive. Um, I just kind of, yeah, jumped into stuff and thought it would work out. So with breastfeeding in particular, I didn't do any study for that. Study is a funny word, but I didn't do any (laughs) preparation. Yeah. I didn't sort of look at videos of people breastfeeding. I didn't speak to anyone. I didn't really do any antenatal education. And so when I brought Luna home from hospital after um, having had a cesarean, having had a pretty tricky first few days in the hospital where, you know, multiple different opinions from midwives mm. about the best way to do things, I really struggled. Um, I She had breast refusal. She, I think, was just traumatized from being, you know, shoved onto the Mm. boob constantly from the midwives and from me, you know, and I think that it just really, really shook me. It was awful, actually. I had, I think it coincided with postpartum blues, like day three, day four. Mm. My milk took five days to come in and, well, actually, I don't even believe it really ever came in because Mm. by day six, it was incredibly emotional Every time I put her, tried to feed her, she would just scream and like, you know, turn her head to the side and didn't want a bar of it. And every single time I would end up in tears trying desperately to get her to feed. And anyone who's gone through that, like really struggling to feed your baby, especially in those early days when obviously you're so anxious about making sure they're getting enough and things like Mm -hmm. that, it is, it is really, really hard because you're obviously like learning something for the first time. You don't really have anything to go off for what feels right because it's never really worked. It hasn't worked yet. Mm. Being around Christmas time, I didn't have like the sort of the nurse that comes to your house didn't come Mm. for many days. I don't think she actually ended up coming until after I had stopped breastfeeding on day six. So however, like over a week because of that time of year that support is pretty minimal at at best anyway. So yeah, that really, really shook me. I think my husband and I, Joel, we were really unprepared. She wasn't sleeping. She wasn't losing a heap of weight, but she was on the borderline of like when it was time to start getting worried because Mm. yeah, she was obviously barely getting anything. She wouldn't suck for like more than a minute at best kind of thing. Also, I had this weird idea that no, using um, a nipple shield was like a failure. No, I think they no. recommended it to me at the hospital potentially because they had told me that I had quite small nipples or whatever it was. And that's the other thing about hospital is everyone's got a different comment to make and every comment that they make really affects you, you know, yeah. and it's su- it may seem like such a throwaway comment from a midwife. Like I remember because I've had breast implants and theoretically they shouldn't affect my breastfeeding whatsoever. They increased in size during pregnancy. I leaked colostrum from like 16 weeks and they like the way that they were put in was behind any kind of muscle, any kind of glands and whatnot. So that shouldn't have affected me. But I remember in the hospital, the midwife saying, well, you may not be able to breastfeed. Mm. And Now what I know, going like looking back, of course that would just be so detrimental to someone's confidence, especially like day two or something (laughs) after you've had a cesarean that you didn't want. You're in hospital longer than you wanted to be there. And it's not ever just one person with one comment. It's every single person who comes into your room. And because of the context you're in, and especially if it's your first time, you're kind of like asking for advice as well. And it's Mm. always conflicting. 
always conflicting. I remember mm. with with my first, I was when I was in the hospital. I was trying to feed him and I said to someone, because I have large boobs, <laughs> um, I, I, and he was so little, I'm like, oh, I'm worried I'm going to suffocate him. And sh- and she said, oh, yeah, you mm. could. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. So what do I do to avoid that? <laughs> and oh. so, so I was like, you know, hunched over, like trying to hold the boob away from him but also feed him. Oh, yeah. And then I did have someone come in and be like, do you see this sliver between his nose and your breast? He's breathing. It's fine. Like she was a she was a mm. lifesaver or, you know, sanity yeah. saver. But, yeah, they just <laughs> say things and they Daddy. really do stick with you. That's obviously it's four, four years later and it's still that Daddy. feeling of being like, okay, so what do I do yeah. now? How do I do this? Definitely. Yeah, exactly. So I guess back to the the question. Yeah, that was definitely the first time that my my wing it attitude that had mm-hmm. generally worked for me in the past was, um, yeah, shaken. Yeah, and you know, not preparing for postpartum, not preparing any kind of support, um, you know, not looking at what that would like. I think it's such a common thing that happens is that everyone prepares for the birth, mm-hmm. and I didn't even really prepare for the birth to be honest, <laughs> the first one anyway. Um, but you know, you're not preparing for postpartum at all, often with your first baby, because you just don't realize what that is going to look like. Mm. And then also, I think that even if you do realize what that's going to look like, it's still difficult to ask for help. It's still difficult yeah. to sit there and admit, I can't do this, because we do live in like this kind of culture where it's so isolated and individual. It's like every person for themselves, and there's no community. Um, or if there is, it's it's rare. And so, yeah, my husband and I weren't prepared for what that was going to look like with breastfeeding. And we didn't even really get to the point where I got with my second, which was like the cluster feeding and all that stuff. It was just like getting her onto the boob. <laughs> and like I said, you know, the like I had, I was recommended the the nipple shields. I felt like, oh no, well, this isn't breastfeeding properly. Like I wanted to breastfeed, you know, in public. I wanted to just whip my boob <laughs> out at a cafe, you know. Yeah. I wanted that experience. I didn't want to have to fiddle with a nipple shield, which in hindsight is so ridiculous. Well, I won't say ridiculous. I have to have compassion for myself, but I feel like it's so common as a first time mom. Everything is black and white. You think, well, it's either a failure or a success. Mm-hmm. There's no gray areas. Um, and also one thing that came back to me with my second is you sort of forget about it once you're out of that newborn phase is that it doesn't last very long in hindsight, mm. but you look back and everything feels like it's just forever. Mm. Those That first week, you're like, when is this going to end? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you yeah. just think, I don't know what that looks like. I, I think that I'll be like this forever. And it just feels so overwhelming that for me, the idea of a nipple shield even for six weeks was like, oh, well, that's forever. I can't Mm. handle that. Because, you know, people would say, oh, well, after six weeks, often like they're okay because they've grown and whatever. But I was like, I can't do that for six weeks. That's a failure. That feeling so fresh in my recent experience. I don't think I've spoken to anyone who said that out loud and it's really (laughs) hard to explain to someone who's not been in it or you know like even talking to my husband about it I'm like I feel like every day is just the same running into every day forever like I feel like Mm -hmm. it's just gonna go on forever and he not it wasn't really able to get it it feels really reassuring (laughs) that that obviously Mm. I'm not the only one 
Yeah. I think also once you're out of it, you forget. Yeah. You forget what it's like in the trenches because it's just this like state of mind that I don't think ever can be replicated. <laughs> every every single I mean I've got I've got three, but every child I've had in those first first weeks I've said to my husband we cannot have another one. <laughs> like every time I'm like, I, I don't think I'll survive this again <laughs> every mm-hmm. time. And mm-hmm. then I'm I'm already like, okay, so this is when the next one will be. <laughs> yes. Already planning. Definitely. So it is very easy. Yeah, I feel like there's definitely a shift, isn't there? Like once you get out of that like nuts phase. Yeah, like, you oh, you kind of okay, I could yeah. do this. Yeah. <laughs> and it's obviously just the 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 survival instinct of the species, isn't yeah. it? It's like yeah. that amnesia. <laughs> really interesting to think about how these things have an influence on us. Like, I mean, in the kind of work mm. that you and I are doing on the VBAC Stories podcast, Australian VBAC Stories mm. podcast, <laughs> um, mm. we talk Plug. about, yeah, <laughs> I feel like we, we, we should, right? Yeah, we talk totally. about how important storytelling is and and the impact it has on us and so we're both very aware of it mm. but then there are all these narratives that that can be so insidious and kind of sneak in their effects sneak in and you don't realize until you really interrogate it like the idea that there's mm. a proper way to breastfeed and if you don't mm-hmm. then you know and that like you know that there's failure or success like these these narratives that we're always dealing with and have to, it's a really hard work and you have to kind of really be active about it to challenge them and and not get bogged down by the mm. expectations inherent in those stories. Like one thing to be aware of it, another thing to kind of be in in those, those seasons and having to remember <laughs> that this is actually yes. not how I have to feel. <laughs> this is not how yes. I have to think. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as well, like, you know, you hear it all the time and it's certainly the case for me, like you build up motherhood for so long in your mind, you know, like you think I can't wait to be, not everyone, but for me, I couldn't wait to be a mum. I couldn't wait to do it myself. I couldn't wait to do a better job, (laughs) Yeah, you know, and um, not even just about that side of it, but just I couldn't wait to be a mum. Like I was so incredibly excited and you build it up in your head for years and then when it is really hard, you do, like, it, it makes sense to think about it like, oh, it's a success or a failure because it doesn't live up, if it doesn't live up to what you thought, yeah, it can feel really heavy. Like, why am I failing at this? And like, this is what I'm supposed to do, you know? Like, if I if I can't make my career work or whatever it is, if I can't be like, really wealthy, whatever, whatever it is, well, being a, like a, being a mum, that's like what, I guess, biologically I'm made to do. So if I can't mm. do that, then what the fuck can I do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing is is mm. there's such a we make such a close tie or connection between our performance of motherhood and our success at it mm-hmm. and our value mm-hmm. as a person. <laughs> like we, we take mm-hmm. it on. Or take it as a reflection of our worth. And I've never felt worse about myself than when I feel like I'm doing a bad job as a mum. Definitely. I think it's so interesting because I can't, for myself, I can't pinpoint like, I, you know, like similarly to you, I always wanted to be a mum, but I can't pinpoint where that came from. 
And it's interesting because it's something it's something that exists with within some women and something that doesn't exist within other women. There's some you know women who absolutely know for sure that they don't want to be a mum, and others who know mm-hmm. absolutely for sure that they do. And people who are unsure, like in between. But was it like a you know women are expected to be mothers, and so I had that societal expectation. It was like, well, that's what I'm going to do, and then. I really wanted it anyway or did I want it because I was like was it did I want it because I was told to want it but then I don't think that's it like mm. it's just interesting to think about I think it's about. very difficult to separate that yeah. like how how would you separate what like society or the culture has ingrained in you and then what yeah. you actually want yourself I mean you can't like you definitely can to an extent but I mean to completely cleave that apart yeah would be, would be almost impossible yeah but I think for me I think it came from it's so it yeah it is really hard to to figure out where that came from because is it is it because I equal parts wanted to do what my mum did well and also do better than what she didn't do well mm. is it just that because that seems like a really odd reason to want to be a mum, you know. Is it because I just had this like just desire to have my own family? And also I think as well actually something I, I have reflected on is that I say I always wanted to be a mum, but I think that when Joel, my husband, and I became serious, when, whenever you can say that was, when we started to get a little bit older, it really just clicked in me. And obviously I was very young when we met, 19. So, you know, whether that's something that would have just happened anyway. But I do believe that when I started thinking that I really wanted to be a mum, it was always sort of with Joel. Like I want to have his children. Mm. I want to have children with him. I want to create a family with him. Yeah, it is very difficult because I was young. I'm not sure whether I would have still had those feelings Mm. because whenever I would imagine being a mum, it was always with him and maybe that comes from having that family of origin that I had wanting to have this like wanting to have a partner that had this beautiful connection with his kids and providing my kids with a father Mm. like that potentially that's where it sort of stemmed from because yes I do remember thinking oh I want to have kids with Joel rather than just oh I will have it with anyone it wasn't like I was thinking oh well if we break up I'll still want to have kids it was like I really want to have children with him so whether that's some kind of like biological instinct like you choose Mm. someone okay they're the one all right now it's time to have children (laughs) I'm not sure (laughs) (laughs) I think it's very difficult to sort of pinpoint that exact yeah like where it actually comes from or whether it's just a combination of so many different things Mm. I think when you meet do meet the right person you have this kind of knowing within yourself and I guess maybe with him and the kind of family structure he had growing up you maybe also knew that you could create that that stability for yourself within your own family Mm, the stability for sure because not only was he from a stable family but he's a very stable person Mm. he's very logical he you know thinks things through (laughs) for a really long time which does frustrate me like he's not (laughs) impulsive at all (laughs) he's not an enabler at all of my impulsivity (laughs) so yeah I think that probably did play a part he's like oh someone who's like gonna say something's gonna happen and then it is gonna happen so, yeah, for sure, I can definitely identify that and how that did play a part, for sure. Did your birth or births, either of them, impact your postpartum and overall experience of motherhood? Yes, for sure. With Luna, as I mentioned before, I did have an unwanted cesarean. Mm. And I think that 
because I can see the thread between that, then the breastfeeding struggles, and then going on to postpartum, I do, yes, I believe that it did have a big impact. But with the breastfeeding, like I sort of said before, by day six, it all become so difficult and so stressful and emotional and awful that we basically decided to just go to formula. Mm. And when we did that, I at the time felt this like real sense of relief, like the burden was lifted. I didn't have to worry anymore. It was easier than what I'd experienced with Mm. breastfeeding. Joel could feed the baby as well, which he loved to do. And so I sort of went into motherhood after that. It was, I won't say easy in terms of practicality, but she was a pretty easygoing baby. Mm. Once she was on the formula, she was a happy baby. She would, like, we would sit on the lounge for hours and she'd just nap on me. I love to have her nap, mm-hmm. cuddling me, like, all day. She slept fairly well. She, I think she was in a bassinet next to the bed for the first couple of weeks and then she was in the bed until eight months, but she slept really well in the bed mm. and we loved having her in there up until eight months and then we were like, okay, Mm-hmm. Uh, can't handle this anymore. <laughs> anyway, so she was relatively easy. I don't want to say easy, but she was relatively straightforward, which sounds funny talking about a baby mm-hmm. after that point in, in the practical sense. But it was, for me, emotionally looking back, I was really isolated, really lonely, really lonely. We lived in an apartment in quite a rough area, and it was a brand new apartment, so it was like sold to it. It was like, oh, this fantastic new apartment, love it. The apartment itself was beautiful, beautiful and light and stuff, but it was still an apartment. And so I stayed inside for, and obviously it was COVID as well. So this was, um, she was born at the end of 2019. So obviously this was like early COVID. But regardless, even without COVID, I pretty much, you know, stayed in the house, I was just, you know, watching Netflix, reading books, whatever I was doing while she was napping on me. I didn't really have a huge support network. I didn't have any friends that had kids. Mm. So I was really isolated and I did go a bit sort of like stir crazy in that, like just desperate for someone to talk to, desperate for an adult to talk to. And I look back and I think I did have... I don't know if I would say postnatal depression, but very much like if I didn't have anything planned for that day to get out of the house or to talk to anyone, I felt really Mm. down and not having like a mum's group or a community, it really weighed on me. So that was incredibly hard. And I think I sort of, it stayed that way until she was about six months old. And I said to Joel, I need a change. Like I can't live like this anymore where I feel really isolated in this apartment where I can't for a walk in my neighborhood because it's rough. You know, at that time, I didn't necessarily think I better get a mum's group because I think before you do that, it feels like such an impossible task. Mm -hmm. But just even I identified that I needed even just to be able to go for walks um, and get out of the house. So we sold that place and moved in like a family member's rental in like a much nicer community where it was like we lived in a cul-de-sac we had a little backyard we had three bedrooms so that made a big difference because I could actually get out and go out into the backyard it's interesting because I didn't have any of those practical issues with Luna where she was like fussy or 
you know, didn't sleep or any of those things, but it was just that isolation Yeah, that really, yeah, I was so down and so like anxious about the day. Like I would think about what I had, like how my day was going to go. And if I had nothing planned, I would be really anxious. Like I'd get really stressed. It's hard because I don't think I necessarily thought I'm really anxious. I didn't really identify what it was. It was just this like real sense of dread. Yeah. If that if that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Yep. Like how, <laughs> how are you going to feel the hours? What are you going to do? Mm. Yeah. Just watching TV and stuff, you just get down because you're just like, I'm just lost in this, like, you know, I'm not living in reality. And mm-hmm. then when I do come back to reality, it's just really hard to deal with. And it's really hard when you don't have friends who have children themselves who don't, mm. that don't understand. I mean, it's a difficult time as well to, to consider when it was COVID and mm. you um kind of have your options limited anyway. And People ask you how you're going. People who don't have have children ask you how you're going, and you really want to <laughs> really want to tell them the truth, <laughs> or you you wish you could tell them, <laughs> the truth, but you you can't really. And yeah, it's difficult navigating that I space. Think I think in order to tell them the truth too, you would have to kind of know yourself. And I yeah. don't think I really knew that there was something wrong. It's it's really interesting to look back and reflect on it now because obviously now it looks very different for me. And I just think like, why, you know, you you can say like, why didn't I just go out and like go on Facebook or like join a mum's group or go to an activity where there'd be other mums, but it's just seems so hard when you're a first time mum. And I remember like, I would call my mum and say, please come over. Like, and she lived in the central coast, like, which is, you know, an hour and a half from Mm. where I lived. I would organize it the week in advance. What what days are you coming over? So I have someone to talk to basically, Mm. because I didn't really need help with the baby. Like I said, she was pretty easygoing. It was Mm. just, yeah, like another adult to talk to. Yeah. When Luna, after she turned one, like I said before that she was a pretty good sleeper. She would go to sleep. We would lay lay down in the bed, put her to sleep in the bed, pat her or cuddle or whatever, and then she'd go to sleep and then she'd be pretty much asleep. Once she turned one, something switched and it was really difficult to get her to go to sleep. I can't really remember what we were actually doing, whether we were like following some kind of, you know, sleep Mm. routine or whatever that you see on Instagram or that kind of stuff. But I do remember being very much like absolutely thrown for a loop because she was up until this point, pretty easygoing. And then she was really difficult and to the point where it would take, you know, over an hour to put her to sleep. And then often we'd put her to sleep and I'd rock her. And then within 10 minutes, she'd like wake up, not wake up. She would have like a night terror and scream. Mm. Like She had night terrors from quite a young age. I think at that time I was really like I said, searching for external sort of experts to tell me how to do things. Mm. I had no connection to my intuition. If I really think about it, my intuition probably was telling me to stay with her and cuddle her because that's what felt right for that mm-hmm. those first eight months. But you have all this outside noise telling you, you can't do that. You're not supposed to cuddle them to sleep. You're not supposed to stay with them to go to sleep because you'll be doing that for the rest of your lives pretty much. <laughs> which is so funny to think about, but I was really influenced by, you know, social media, what other people had told me about their kids. I remember something that my father-in-law said once really stuck with me, which is so funny to reflect on, but 
they had like family friends that had like a six-year-old that still needed to be, you know, still took her, I don't know, an hour to go to sleep and the parents needed to sit with her. And I remember a comment he made about how like, oh my gosh, she's basically running their lives. And for some reason, even though I didn't agree with it, it really just stuck with me. Mm. And I just thought I've got to like train, you know, in inverted commas, this toddler to go to sleep on her own because that's what a good parent would do or that's what you're supposed Mm. to do. And so for about six months, if not, if I'm honest, a year, Joel and I would just turn our, we turned our life upside down essentially to try and get her to go to sleep on her own to the point where we would, you know, ignore crying, like ignore screaming. We did like, we'd let her cry and just like, I remember one night we let her cry for two hours and I just breaks my heart to think Mm. about it now. But we just thought, well, that's what you have to do because God forbid you have a child that needs comforting to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And one thing that that did, and I'm sure a lot of parents can relate to this, is it really put a strain on Joel and my relationship Mm. Because every night, you know, at seven o'clock, whatever it was, it would be an hour and a half. Well, obviously you got the bedtime routine too with bath and whatnot as well. So Mm. pretty much two hours every night it would take to put Luna to sleep and it would be screaming and it would be stressful and it would be emotional. And it just took this huge toll on our relationship. And Joel would be, for his own reasons, really triggered yeah, he really struggled to handle that. And Mm. so we both feel shitty about it, obviously. And then when you've got a toddler, you can't take it out on the toddler. So you take it out on each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're supposed to be on the same team. And we just weren't. We were just like kind of, yeah, as I said, really taking that tension out on each other. Yeah. And because there was no other outlet. And not having like a community still at that point, not having friends really that had kids, not having mum's groups and other people that you could talk to, then Mm. all that pent up energy just directs at each other. Yeah, it was really hard. You know, obviously that isolation and loneliness that affected me was a lot, but from basically the age of one till two, two and a half with Luna, it was really difficult. That was probably the most difficult thing. When I think back now, like... Just cuddle it asleep, just sit mm. with her and, and hold her hand, you know, like, and we did like, don't get me wrong. We tried everything. We did do that to an extent, but it was just like this idea that we had to yeah, yeah follow a certain rule or we couldn't be that the hands-on attached parenting. Cause like that, not that, like, I don't know if, whether, if I want to put a label on it, but do you know what I mean? Like that, that's just not the way you're supposed to do it yeah. or something. Which that is... it would mean a certain thing about you if you were mm. known to do that or seen to do it, or even even if there mm. aren't, aren't literal eyes on you, people watching <laughs> you, it's still like you're aware that there is an expectation of how you're supposed to do something. And sleep especially mm. is such a fraught topic in parenting where if mm-hmm. you if you have a child that sleeps through, then clearly you're doing something right. And if you have a child, mm-hmm. more importantly, who doesn't sleep through and wakes up and is difficult to settle, then clearly you're doing something wrong. You know, I knew that it was unrealistic expectations deep down. I knew, mm. I knew, like I, I remember seeing Instagram posts where they would say, oh, like, well, as an adult, you have a wind down yeah. routine, you know, you, you have to you know, look on your phone for a certain amount of time, read a book, have a cup of tea, 
you know, you don't always go straight to sleep. Sometimes you do mm. toss and turn and a child needs support with that because they're a child like, and they're yeah. alone and they're in their room by themselves. And I knew all that stuff, but it was just, something was just driving me that mm. just, I can't even explain it, but yeah, it was just really difficult. And I think it's not something that people talk about a lot is like how much the strain of kids can really affect your marriage, especially when before kids, like I sort of said before, Joel and I were so like obsessed with each other. We yeah. were just so in love. You know, we were so codependent. We love spending time together. We were best mm. friends. And then, yeah, it puts you at odds sometimes. And yeah, so that's why I really wanted to mention that because yeah. I think that it's something that I never, I would never hear stories about back then, you know, couples yeah. that were like at odds and really challenge their relationship and yeah yeah so and that's absolutely <laughs> important to mention because you're right I have not I've heard oh you know having children is going to challenge your relationship and it's going to change your relationship and that was one of the the things that my in-laws warned us about um before we <laughs> had Milo's that oh you know you won't have time to do whatever you want and you know it's going to have it's going to change your relationship and you know, on the one hand, you're like, well, of, of course, because we're going from a, from individuals and a couple to parents. But mm. when you when you're when it does happen mm. and you're kind of you know yelling at each other or or at you know at odds with each other, you kind of like, okay, so what's changed? And it's really obvious what's changed. It's a child. <laughs> <laughs> There's this little person in between mm. you, and then you kind mm. of think about not think about whether you made the right choice, but like. Mm, yeah that it's, I did have those moments <laughs> <laughs> like more than like what the hell have we done yeah absolutely and mm-hmm. I mean I've never I've never I've definitely had that thought myself but I've never heard Ow. other people Ow. say it mm. which is really reassuring like that's one of the things as well is that even though you don't obviously yeah. don't want to wish you don't wish those experiences on other people it is such a like breath of fresh air when someone does say yeah I absolutely felt that way and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. you like it was not just, and that's a big thing about motherhood is a lot of it seems to be like a lot of it is secret or like shameful mm-hmm. or has to be hidden or, mm-hmm. you know, you can't really voice it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm totally getting off track, but I just wanted to say that I absolutely had that a very similar experience with Milo. He was very a very tricky sleeper from the the mm-hmm. get go. It was just mm-hmm. really nightmarish. Mm-hmm. And I, on the one hand, was lucky that I was like really lucky to be living with my mum, who was and is the most hands-on grandmother I've ever like. She's so so involved and so helpful. But at the same time, my so I was living well. We were living with my mum in a couple of rooms in the back of her house, and then my eldest sister, who had her son three weeks before me, she had built a house kind of attached two mums so she was there as well with her newborn and her son mm. was a unicorn baby and was sleeping through from very early <laughs> she also had different strategies to me so she was doing different things and you know mum saw mm-hmm. how challenged I was or no I'm gonna be I'll be real how broken I was by 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Baby not sleeping that she was like, well, why don't you try this? And it was kind of like, God, I don't know if it's a cry it out method. There was a particular method where it was just like you yeah. let them cry and then you you kind of stay in the room. Put them down awake or whatever. Yeah, drowsy but awake. And then you yeah. um, back out of the room <laughs> yeah. and you pat them or, you know, like it's all these different things. Yeah. And I'm like, well, clearly I'm doing something wrong, so I, I should try this. And I still really clearly, mm-hmm. even though a lot of it is a blur, I still really clearly have this image of he must have been old enough to stand because or pull himself up because we were just standing there, Finney and I just standing there watching this baby cry and he pulled himself up. And I'm like, okay, where's the point where he's meant to de-escalate, like they tell me? Like he's not de-escalating, yeah. he's escalating. This is not yeah. working. And I ha- I did have a moment of being like, fuck this. This is yeah. not right and picked him up and I guess there's two two kind of events. There's that one. Another one I went actually went to Tresillion, I think, when he was around yep. five months because I was like, you know, desperate, just so desperate yes. for something to work yeah. and because I'd been trying all the things. And then I went to Tresillion for one night because when I got there and they were telling me the things, I'm like, so basically what I've been trying, <laughs> like I, I've been <laughs> doing all this and I got zero sleep there because I don't sleep well anywhere but at home where I feel obviously feel safe. Yep. And then the next morning I'm yeah. like, yeah, I don't want to be here anymore. This doesn't feel right. You're not telling me anything I don't know. Yeah. And like even down to Milo is a tummy sleeper and, you know, you meant to put him on their back. And so obviously from when he was a newborn yes. to when he could roll, then I did put him on his back. But even when he could roll, you're told, well, they still have to sleep on their back. And he did not want to go to sleep on his back. Like he just did not. And so I'm like, I know yeah. he's meant to do that. One, and that's another point where you've got different people telling you different things. Like one was just like, yes, mm-hmm. policy says he has to be on his back. <laughs> and another one was just like, oh, well, if that's how he goes to sleep, just put him on his belly. I'm like, what? what's, you know, how is this helping me? And so I think yes. after that point and the point of realising, like this is going against everything I feel, I think I just I just held him. I'm just like, okay, we're just going to, like, I'm just going to hold you. And yeah. He's almost four before on Thursday and I still hold him to sleep and that's become such a precious time because he's getting, you know, he's getting bigger and he's he's such a tall yeah. boy and I had trouble standing and holding him to put him in his bed once he was asleep tonight and I was like, oh, gosh, how much longer am I going to have where I can still do this? You know, and that's a big shift from, oh, oh no, what if I have to do this for a long time? Like, now I'm like. I don't want this yeah. moment to be, you know, be taken away. So those kind of, there's always, I feel like there's always this idea of there's ways that you should be doing something in motherhood. Like there's shoulds and the right ways and really the the right way. And I think it's something we know on a, um intellectual level, but intuitively and, mm-hmm. well, I don't know if maybe it's both of those, like the, the right way is the way that works for you and your family, but it's, yeah. It's really hard to come up against these societal narratives and expectations and go against them. And I think as well, like, it goes back to, you know, for me, just not having that connection to my intuition and sort Mm. of not trusting it. And so much so that I couldn't even recognize what was my own intuition Mm. and what wasn't. Like, what actually did I want to do here? And it's funny on reflection now, because I think it's just something that unfortunately, first time mums, it's just super common. And as you have more kids, 
it will naturally become stronger, your intuition. But if there's a way of making it so that first-time mums can have that connection to that, I mean, that would just be so invaluable in so many different ways, not just about sleeping, but so many things. I think it is that. And I think that I know a lot of people talk about this. I know B from Core and Floor talks about this so much is like that because we are the way that we're raised is to be disconnected from that, to be disconnected from our bodies and our intuition. And so it makes complete sense that it is this journey back to it. Like it's not something that just comes naturally a lot of the time. I feel like it ebbs and flows as well. Mm. There's some moments Mm -hmm. where you feel really connected and then you're like, okay, so I've done I've done the work, I've I'm reconnected and then something happens and you're like, I have no idea what I should do here. I definitely feel much stronger now after having Evie, but I mean, it was probably right up until she was born that I was struggling with it, <laughs> you yeah, know, with the end definitely. last days of pregnancy and everything. But yeah, I think it's definitely this journey. I just, I wonder if you have, <laughs> not to put you on the spot, but do you have an answer to that? Like how, how could we help first time mothers? Like, <laughs> what do you think it would take? Or do you think that it's kind of like trial by fire. Like, do they? Do we have to have that? Like, you know, first home mum experience of just being thrown in the deep end. Like, is there a way to prepare? Or I think I don't know if there is an answer in mm. the way that we live our lives now. I think that if we lived like we did when we were in communities and we had so much more connection to older generations and like you know siblings and and aunties and uncles and that kind of stuff where we would see it and we would be raised in communities that people would parent right in front of your eyes Mm. and you would see it and you would you know like with breastfeeding you know like watching your watching the women in your community breastfeed all the time like of course that would make sense you would just have this knowledge that would like sit within you that you'd be able to draw on. I think that is something that is just really, like I think about this so much, like it's really such a shame that we have lost that because I really think that that would make so much of a difference, not just to, you know, people's confidence in parenting, but just that support network you know, Mm -hmm. that we don't have any more, that we have to reclaim, that we have to find ourselves, which for some people is really hard to do. Like it was hard for me with Luna. So Mm. I think that potentially is the answer. If there is an answer, I think Mm -hmm. that would be, but I mean, I don't know how we would ever, how we'd make that happen (laughs) now, (laughs) but yeah, (laughs) whether we all just go live in communes. (laughs) Um, I mean, I feel like that's definitely the answer. (laughs) Yeah. Did having another child impact or change your experience of motherhood? Yes. So with my second pregnancy, it was a surprise and they are just under two years apart. So we were really excited because we wanted to have our kids close together, but it was unexpected. So with that pregnancy, I ended up shifting my trajectory a lot. I was planning a repeat cesarean. I ended up having a home birth after cesarean. So yes, change of course there. And in terms of that pregnancy, 
see in that journey. I had to do a lot of work on sort of connecting to my intuition and my instincts because anyone that's had a VBAC can probably relate to this is like that journey from what happened to me and what was done to me to, you know, having that control, reclaiming that power. And a lot of that really is tapping into your inner knowing, your inner intuition. And so my birth at home was absolutely amazing, completely different experience second time round. It was blissful. It was everything I'd hoped it would be. I did a lot of education. Um, I did do a calm birth course, but also just my own preparation, read a lot of books, listened to a lot of podcasts, joined the VBAC Australia Facebook group, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. And so really just not only educated myself, surround myself with a community of like-minded people, even just online at first. And so I was able to have that beautiful labor and birth because Like I said, I really just trusted myself, trusted my body, knew that I could do it. And so I guess having that experience really can't help but shift something in you when you go into your second or your subsequent sort of postpartum period. Because, you know, after my first, I, well, I mean, first time mum, you really don't really know what you're doing. But I also was affected so much by, you know, that that birth that I had no control over and that was completely went off course from what I expected. So this time it was not only second time around, but also just having had that birth and proving to myself, I guess, that my body could work. And it's interesting I say second time around as if, you know, I was like some kind of expert because in a lot of ways, yes, um, you know, you naturally I guess relax a lot more in terms of what babies are supposed to be doing you know getting worried about not hitting this certain milestone and I definitely felt a lot more at ease a lot more trusted my baby Remy like that she was just doing what she needed to do and and wasn't sort of like watching her super closely waiting for the next sort of thing to to pop up and I think Mm. that's something that I've actually seen a bit of it recently on social media it's like I don't know whether this is everyone's experience but with the first baby for me it was like I was constantly waiting for the next thing to happen like okay well when's she gonna do such and such when's she gonna be ready for solids when's she going to sit up or crawl or whatever which is like a little bit sad because you don't necessarily get to really enjoy the moments as they come and as they happen, because yeah, it was like constantly looking for the next thing, like as if they're a project or something. And then them hitting the milestones when they're supposed to somehow means that you're doing a good job or something. Mm-hmm. Going back to looking for that external validation rather than just knowing yourself that you're doing a good job and your baby or your child is doing great and everything's fine. So yeah, definitely with Remy, my second, I felt a lot more trust, but at the same time, I was really determined to breastfeed. And I sort of look back on that time and think it's almost like I was a first time mum again in that regard, because I really was like in a completely unknown territory for me. With my first, my milk didn't really ever come in. It's funny because with Remy, um, same thing happened as with Luna. My milk didn't come in until day five with Remy, even though I'd had this physiological home birth, you know, I didn't have to go into the hospital for anything. We didn't have any complications. Got to have that golden three hours. Well, 
more really but yeah still took a while and so when it did finally come in I was like okay this didn't happen before and then you know it's like all these unknown things like going to bed and waking up in a pool of milk (laughs) 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 and just feeling like oh my gosh this is like a lot you know like not only emotionally but physically like sensory like leaking everywhere constantly having a baby attached to you I did do a lot of research, but I don't think anything really prepares you for that first couple of weeks with a breastfeeding newborn, just mm. how intense it is. It's just nonstop. I mean, <laughs> Remy would feed every like hour and a half, even though I'd had this really beautiful experience with the birth and I felt very much tapped into my intuition because I hadn't breastfed really before or for more than six days, I really sort of started seeking external experts again because I just really needed someone to tell me I was doing it was fine mm. and I have to say one thing that was amazing was I had a home birth with a private midwife and so was able to get that six weeks postpartum support from her which was amazing especially compared to what you get at the hospital and so you know <laughs> She would come for our checks and she'd say, everything looks good. Like she's putting on weight. Like she put on, she's back to her birth weight within like a couple of days. She was going really well in that regard. But still like because of just the constant like fussiness because she wouldn't go to anyone else. I just was really, I guess, unprepared for that, especially because having had a bottle fed, formula fed baby that would be perfectly happy going to her father for a bottle and settling and, you know, being like clockwork and really on a schedule. I didn't really have to think like you still stress and you still think, oh, I've got to make sure they have their bottle at the right time, but it's very different. So I was, yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking back to that time. It was just like, honestly, it was surreal. Like it just, it was a lot. And I think it was just not completely normal newborn behavior, completely normal experience that so many other people go through. But I think for me, because I had planned this home birth, expecting it to mean that I would be able to breastfeed so easily. And the fact that it wasn't easy, but I don't think it ever is easy, but I I don't know. I just thought that it would be really straightforward and it would just come naturally And, you know, my first birth, I had every intervention possible. And so that's what I put down to having those issues with breastfeeding, which definitely had a huge impact. Um, And also the support that I got after in the hospital, definitely. But I think, yeah, I think that I really, I really thought it would be easy. And also like, it was really tricky to navigate with um, Joel, my husband too, because he'd never seen a breastfed baby. And I guess this kind of sort of really speaks to how we live and how we parent in like modern culture is like so separate from each other. People very rarely see other people breastfeed. Potentially, you know, you might see someone in public, but, you know, your family, your friends, like it's just not something that you're always exposed to, you know, growing up or, you know, around other people. People like even if you had a family member that did breastfeed, you know, like it's like, oh, go into the other room or mm. do you know what I mean? It's it's not, I feel like we've really lost that sort of like sacred knowledge that you sort of just learn by osmosis because you're there and you're witnessing it mm. and you can see what it's like, what a normal newborn is like. 
I think I must have seen my stepmom breastfeed my little sisters because I remember when I was pregnant with Milo, I asked her, isn't it weird? <laughs> you know, I just had this, I wasn't sure. And she's like, <laughs> I remember her really clearly saying, no, it's beautiful with this like longing. And I get that now a hundred percent. So I That's must so have seen nice. it, but it wasn't really, really in my immediate circle. And because I was the first one of my friends to have a baby and mm-hmm. also my sisters, my older sisters who were close in age to my eldest one had her baby three weeks before I had mine. So I had three mm. weeks of seeing <laughs> her breastfeed and then, you know. Even not even just seeing it, but like talking about it. Like I think that I feel like those early days with a breastfed newborn, it's not something you that's just commonly talked about or maybe it just mm. wasn't, maybe I just wasn't hearing it. I think you're right. I think it speaks to a, a, this larger idea or phenomenon that happens in our modern society. I think that is kind of the whole reason behind this podcast is that we don't <laughs> like, so everyone so far, and I've only interviewed three people so far, but has said when I ask what were your expectations of motherhood, they respond saying, I knew it was going to be hard. So I feel like we we have this awareness that it's this challenging, hard role, but at the same time, I feel like it has to be like hush-hush, like we're not allowed to actually acknowledge that it's hard. We're not allowed mm-hmm. to seem ungrateful or seem to be complaining or just kind of saying out loud that actually this is taking a lot from me, you know, like and mm. and we're not really allowed to be like, well, both can exist at once. I can desperately love this experience and also sometimes just want to escape it. Like Mm. I feel like there's like a taboo against that, like because there's all these narratives about what the ideal mother should look like and there's a lot that is unspoken in motherhood Mm. or unseen and it's like just kind of we're socialised as women to want to be mothers but what we're not socialised is how. (laughs) <laughs> you know yeah where definitely. it's just kind of you're a woman you can naturally conceive carry and birth babies therefore you should naturally know how to raise one or feed one and- or whatever and how how I meant I'm try- trying to link it back to what you were saying is what I had the thought of is like maybe like you had this idea of wanting to really like really wanting to breastfeed and mm. then when it was what it was is like which is incredibly difficult and sometimes you just kind of feel trapped did you have the sense that you couldn't be like oh fuck like why did I want this like did you mm. I don't want I definitely don't want to be putting words in your mouth but was there a feeling like you had to love every minute of that particular aspect of mothering like I feel like you really hit the nail on the head in terms of the dynamic between my husband and I because I basically changed from a repeat cesarean, a planned repeat cesarean to a home birth because the catalyst really was finding out that I couldn't have skin to skin in hospital. And so I essentially changed the entire plan, got a private midwife, did everything differently so that I could have the best chance to breastfeed. Because while I didn't go into this pregnancy knowing that I wanted a different birth. I knew that I wanted a different breastfeeding experience from the get-go. Like that was something that I had held the grief of not being able to do Mm. that with Luna. I really held on to that for a really long time, even after Remy was born. And so when the time came for it to be really difficult and really intense and feeling like it was just yeah like I didn't know if it was working or not like I didn't know if I was doing the right thing 
I did feel like I had to kind of just suck it up and deal with it because it was like, well, you wanted this, like, look how hard you worked for this. And so pretty much all the women in my family and friends hadn't breastfed. So I literally had no community. I had no friends to ask. And I felt really isolated because I didn't have, you know, a safe space where I could go and breastfeed and someone else was breastfeeding at the same time or someone had done it not that long ago and like Mm -hmm. we could talk about it. And I really felt that because I felt really weird everywhere I went within like family, you know, events and stuff. And it's funny because because I had fought so hard to breastfeed, I was one of those people that just loved breastfeeding in public I would absolutely like it was like (laughs) going to the park going to wherever it was I remember one time when she was really little we did our Christmas shopping so she must have only been six weeks old or four weeks old or something and I walked around David Jones just breastfeeding her (laughs) and um I loved that side of it and I think because part of it is like there is this like whole idea that it should be covered up. I mean, Mm not, not in all circumstances, but definitely like in David Jones, I doubt that's um, something they necessarily expect to see, especially a woman that's walking around trying to shop and (laughs) do it at the same time. Like I didn't, I wasn't in one of those um, parents' rooms. Mm. And so it's really interesting looking back because there's some parts of it that I absolutely loved and really enjoyed and sort of like wanted to sort of show the world and be like, look, I'm breastfeeding. Because when I had Luna and I wasn't able to, I would see women out in public doing it. And I just thought, oh my God, like how amazing is that? Like, and it did feel really sad. Mm. I felt really sad that I couldn't. And so when it was my time to to have my my go again essentially um yeah that was something I really loved to do but at the same time when I was out in public with strangers couldn't care less but when I was with family and I think this is just such a common thing that people talk about so often is when you're with people that you know you know your family your friends and even if they don't make verbal comments it's just the vibe that you get you know like I was really unusual and 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 hmm. so anytime that's how I felt and so even if like I would you know be trying to feed her and obviously like really little baby you know trying to get it to latch on and you obviously sometimes it is a bit of a challenge um, for the first you know couple of minutes or something and so if they cry and things like that and then you can just feel like the eyes on you and like the judgment and like what is she doing like why doesn't she just bottle feed that baby like it just looks like so much effort mm-hmm. and so like I'd go places with extended family and stuff and it was like why are you bothering if it's tricky and I think that is such a challenge for people breastfeeding in this day and age because there's this whole narrative around no one should judge a mother that formula feeds and that's 100% true of course no one should be judging anyone but at the same time I feel like sometimes that can take away from the mother that really does want to breastfeed and is finding it challenging but in spite of that still wants to keep going with it and just really needs support and Mm. really needs to be heard and people don't need to try and fix it yeah there's a huge connection between I, I feel and especially after the interview this morning 
all I was hearing through that story was there there is this huge distrust in women's bodies. And so, mm. you know, there's a comparison to be made between what we're talking about, like with formula feeding versus breastfeeding and intervention versus non-intervention or intervention-free birth, because it's like, Definitely. well, there's help here, so why wouldn't you take that help? And mm. it's just, I feel like it exactly. comes down to, like I, I was just struck again and again by the different aspects of that birth story I heard where it's just like they really, our society really does not trust women, women's bodies, does not respect us, does not value in like the kind of inherent power that's been passed down for millennia. Like it's just, yeah, we've been, and it's like that that first um, chapter of reclaiming childbirth as a rite of passage where you just get mm. walloped again and again and again with all the ways that we've been robbed of our power. Yeah, it's just, I'm not sure what my point was there. But sure like what I you were saying there. about the about the trust in in women and not and not just the trust in women's bodies, but trusting the decisions that they're making about their bodies. Like mm. if, if a woman is struggling to breastfeed, but has made the decision that that's what she wants to do and that's what's really important to her, then we have to trust that she knows what's best for her and her baby. Mm-hmm. If it from the outside it doesn't look like she's succeeding in inverted commas Mm. um that's not still not someone's place to decide to swoop in and save her or fix the problem and what you said before about the parallels between cesarean or intervention versus formula I feel that so deeply because yeah it really is just about that trust in yourself and that intuition and I feel like with me with Remy I did breastfeed her for eight months, which obviously having only breastfed Luna for six days was a huge achievement. And yeah, I absolutely. was so proud of myself. And obviously in hindsight, look like I wish I still breastfed her now and she's almost two. Like, But with that experience, it was really hard, even though, and, and you know what, I really just put it down to not trusting myself, which you can't just really say to a woman or a mother just trust yourself because mm. like it's just not like that's not a do that yeah that's also no, not a <laughs> lesson that we ever ever receive we never taught how to do that mm. there's never a point where as a woman we're allowed to just be like or mm. as a mother to just be mm. there's always like just thinking of the language you use like there's you know this idea of success or failure there's mm. always this idea that you're either succeeding or you're failing at being a mother or being a woman how we should look, how we should act, how we should parent. There's always a right way and a wrong way and it changes second to second, person to person or context to context. There's just never a point where we can just just trust ourselves and just be and just ignore all that. It's really difficult to challenge all of those narratives that we're just bombarded with all the time. Yeah, 100%. And it's so good for you to bring that up because, like you said, it's not just about motherhood itself. It's about when you're a child and when you're a teenager and you have these these ideas put in your head about well if you're not a certain way a very narrow sort of idea of what you're supposed to be then you're doing it wrong and I can even think back to being a teenager and spending like 95% of my time and energy trying to fit into a certain mold that you know 
was just ridiculous, like thinking about it. And so, of course, you know, you grow up and you have this enormous pressure as a mother. And like, obviously I spoke before about the pressure that I put on myself, you know, coming from the family that I did, but not only that, the societal pressure that we've discussed. And so it's no wonder that we question ourselves at every chance. And I don't think that social media has helped. On one hand, there are some great some great um, parts to it, you know, like you get a bit of solidarity there, like you have your support groups and things like that. But at the same time, every little bit of content that you absorb on there just imprints on you somehow. And then you think, oh, well, I'm not doing it the way that that person said. Like I remember with Luna, like, you know, having this idea about how she was supposed to sleep. And it's not just social media. It's how your friends are doing stuff. And you're like, oh, my baby's like not sleeping this way or whatever it is. And I feel like we kind of put this expectation on babies and children to be like the most convenient possible. Like (laughs) let's try and make them have as little impact on our lives as we can. Let's make it so that they go to sleep at 6 or 7 p.m., sleep through the night, And yes, like I'm not taking away from the fact that it's a dream when, you know, you can have a good night's sleep and you can get some time to yourself a hundred percent. But I feel like when babies are young and they still need us in so many ways, it's like our culture is like, let's make it so that babies are essentially supposed to impact your life as little as possible. And when you actually think about it, it's like, but why? Like, Mm. why should we, why do we want this? You know, when I think about with Luna, how like I was so desperate to get her to go to sleep on her own. And it's like, but what was that actually for? Because I wouldn't have minded putting her to sleep and and cuddling her and whatever it was. But it's Mm. like, you really have to, in hindsight, you look back and you think, where did that come from? Where did that pressure come from? And I think it's so true in so many aspects of motherhood, like breastfeeding. It's like, well, I've got this idea of what breastfeeding is because I've seen these beautiful photos of women breastfeeding so easily. And so that's what it's supposed to be like. It's not supposed to be hard. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's kind of going back to what I was saying before. It's not just your own idea of what it's supposed to be. It's other people. And so like I was sort of talking about with Joel, having not seen a baby, like a newborn that breastfed, it's like he would constantly question everything. Like, oh, why is she crying so much? Like, how come you can't put it down for two seconds? How come I can't put it to sleep? All this sort of stuff. And I'm like, well, like that's just, and I knew that that's what a, a baby's like, that's just how they can be. But having not lived it before, it was really, I had to keep reminding myself and I had to keep going back to this, but this is normal. Like just remember, Mm. and I would have like Ashley, my midwife say, this is completely normal. Like, don't worry. You know, your baby is putting on weight. Your baby is having all the right outputs, you know, just because she's fussy. Like unfortunately, sometimes babies are just fussy. And you know, it's so funny because think back to Remy, she was sleeping so well overnight from such a young age. And yet because she was fussy during the day and cluster feeding all day and because I had like, you know, the pressure from other people, I had my husband sort of wondering why our baby was so fussy all the time, why he couldn't settle her. It's like big picture. I should have been like, I've got a pretty good, I've got this baby who sleeps through most nights. Of course she needs to feed constantly Mm -hmm. during the day. Like they need a lot of milk. They're very They're clever. They can be very clever that way. Yeah. Setting and themselves so I, up for the night. Yes. And like, yes, you know, I think everyone's experience is challenging in their own way. But like, I look back and I think, what was I complaining about? Like, I had this baby that slept through the night. Yes, she was a lot during the day. Yes, I couldn't really go out in the car without her screaming. And that was obviously, you know, stressful and mm. 
Yeah. And, and like I said, I really, I think, you know, that those first six weeks are so important with like supply and things like that. And I didn't have the right size breast shield for the pump. I didn't pump enough, I don't think. So yeah, it was a bit of a struggle. And I have to say, had I had a really good breastfeeding experience or had I trusted myself and sort of just went with what was working for the first few weeks and not questioned things and sort of interfered with physiology in that way, I think I would have had a really wonderful postpartum, but it made things challenging. And then obviously with your relationship too, sort of like back to that again, it's like having to constantly explain to your husband, just trust me, everything's fine. And then him saying, well, to me, it doesn't look fine. And I have no way of knowing that what you're doing is right. And I haven't seen this before. And all my sort of family are sort of giving off this vibe that, oh, is everything okay? Like that doesn't look right. It's the classic thing when, you know, you're breastfeeding and someone says, are you feeding them again? Like, didn't they just have a feed? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, well, if you haven't breastfed, you don't know necessarily that babies don't just get on the boob for food. It's Mm. like comfort. It's everything. (laughs) With Evie, my mum was like, I think she would do really well with a dummy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's me. I'm I'm her dummy. Like, yes. you know, dummies were made to, like, replicate or, or replace breasts, right? Like, that's the idea of comforting. So why would why would I get some external thing to comfort my baby? I'm like, she. I don't have a problem with this. She needs to feed as frequently as she does. That's fine. Just, like, with the most bizarre conversation, I'm just like, it's just so embedded, this idea that... Mm. On the one hand, people seem to have good intentions when they're they're like, well, just make it easier on yourself. Why are you making mm. it so hard for yourself? And it's like, well, one, mm. there's really hard moments. That's where growth happens. So mm. you know, if everything was always easy, we wouldn't really change or we would totally buckle mm. when something d- did get hard. Mm. And two, well, I guess it's related. It's like it doesn't always have to be easy, but there's always, no, exactly. I mean, it's also tied into obviously into capitalism and everything. It's just like, well, here's this product <laughs> that will make your life easier, yes. you know. Yes. So people want to sell things to us all the time. But it's just so weird that we can't just be like, oh, yeah, that's really hard. I can see that's hard for you. People feel uncomfortable if they can't offer you a solution. I Mm. feel like they want to be able to say, well, how about, have you tried such and such? And I think that unless you have been in that exact position yourself, you're never going to understand how much that can really impact someone's confidence. Mm -hmm. Um, And you may, like you said, have the best intentions. You may think, oh my gosh, this mother is really struggling, you know, surely a dummy will give her a bit of reprieve. But it's like sometimes we just want to be heard and we just want to be validated. And I think that is so important to have that support network of people that don't feel the need to fix things, understand that it is your experience and you're making the decisions that are right for you and your baby. And you don't need to be questioned because potentially you are confident, but you know, you might have had a really shit day where your baby was cluster feeding and you did have those thoughts of like, why am I doing this? Because of Mm. course you're going to have those thoughts. Why am I doing this? Gosh, this is hard. And then to have someone come in and say, gosh, that looks really hard. Are you sure you want to do this? And you're like, well, fuck, like I was actually thinking that, but I could have really used someone to say, gosh, you're doing an amazing job. Mm -hmm. Like you're really an amazing mother and I can see it looks like it is really challenging. What can I do to support you? Like Mm. that's all people need. But it's like this weird thing where people feel the need to fix and maybe it's a way of like they don't want to hear emotions because it makes them uncomfortable. So they go, 
oh, God, how can I fix this rather mm-hmm. than be here and hear the uncomfortable truths of like, oh, fuck, I feel like shit. Because I feel like as a society we so very much have gone away from that and like we don't want to hear that someone's depressed. We don't want to hear that someone's having mm. a hard time. We just want to be able to talk about, oh, well, there's X, Y, Z. You we know, just want to give us dummies and- still. <laughs> exactly. And I think the dummy thing goes so, so very much ties into what I was saying about babies are supposed to be not an inconvenience. And I've had so many comments saying that baby's just using you as a dummy. And it's like, well, what's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, like yeah, good. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. It's so so bizarre. And I actually somehow, and and maybe I can attribute this to my journey with the with the um pregnancy and and building my confidence and and having that birth and going, fuck, I did that. Like how amazing am I? But it's interesting, kind of the like dichotomy of the whole experience. But with the comforting and stuff, I love to be able to put Remy on the boob and comfort her that way and anytime she was fussing be able to do that and and soothe her in that way which I couldn't do with Luna and so Mm. I would say to Joel my husband I would say like yes this may seem hard but look how good this is that I can just soothe her this is actually really convenient yeah (laughs) this is magical but it's like it I I don't know is does it still make people uncomfortable? I mm. I mean, I know this isn't necessarily a breastfeeding podcast. I feel like we've kind of <laughs> gone into that territory. But, yeah, it's something that I'm so passionate about because obviously with my experiences and stuff and with Remy, I ended up going to formula almost like completely when she was five months old. And then I think I went to a wedding or something and I had a friend of a friend who was there and she was breastfeeding and it was the first time I could sit with someone and breastfeed our babies because I was still kind of just comfort feeding her in between. And I went away from that event and I was like, I don't want to give this up because I fought so hard for this and I'm going to really regret it. And I sort of gave up the first time. I know it's not necessarily the most helpful language, but it's kind of just how I felt. Mm. Gave up the first time. I was like, I'm going to do this. So I ended up pumping, like triple feeding, pumping, bottle feeding as needed and breastfeeding for, I think it would have been about three weeks or something, like eight pumps a day, eight feeds a day, like four bottles. Like obviously they got less and less. Yeah. I was, it was intense. It was Mm. so intense. I was tracking everything on an app and everything. I got my supply back up and it was actually so funny because I, I could see her like the milk transfer and I could see her gulping and all those like signs that you're supposed to see. But even then I still had this like, you know, I had Amy, my lactation consultant, and I was like messaging her and going, you know, I'm not feeding any bottles. Is like that okay? And she says, if she doesn't need it, like you've done amazing. You're back to exclusively breastfeeding. But I still needed that like external expert to tell me that I was doing the right thing. It's so interesting. And then obviously like a year and a half on from that, I look back and I think, God, like why didn't I just trust myself? Like I was doing everything right and mm. she was fine. And I think it's easy in hindsight because you're not in the thick of it and support is so important and I just didn't really have that at all. Anyway, that was a really long-winded way of saying, yes, it did affect my mothering experience. <laughs> no, I really I love that because that's the thing is that some some parts of your journey as a mother are going to be or some aspects are going to stand out more or going to be more impactful. And that that I honestly I think it 
for me, at least in my experience, that idea of the importance of intuition and connecting to it and also like trusting yourself and feeling confident, like it it really does ebb and flow and it come it seems to crop mm. up again and again for me regardless of how many babies I have. Like I'm definitely mm. more confident now and my birth with Evie absolutely just like it's just everything's been beautiful since she was born. I mean, so good. <laughs> I won't, I should, that's kind of a lie. Like the first few weeks, of course, were super intense. Like, of course, oh, so much, but you know, <laughs> I do absolutely feel more confident, but there's still, there were still moments in the early days where it's just like, am I doing this right? Or, mm. you know, and society has a lot to answer for, but I also mm. think that's just part of being a mother is that certainty. I think we can definitely make progress towards it and like, it can grow stronger and stronger, but I don't know if it's always going to be there, just like a constant, mm. you know, because there's always going to be different challenges. So, you know, no, regardless of what, what season of mothering we're in, like Amy, she's kind of transitioning from the season that we're in into like yeah. having also like older kids and yeah. like, you know, there's different challenges that she's facing that yeah. we no doubt will <laughs> get to as well. With all that in mind, all those pressures in mind, Mm. how have you changed since becoming a mother? I feel like I'm a lot more confident in myself. I feel like sort of what I alluded to before, feeling like this is what I really wanted to do for so long and this is what I was made to do and feeling like I could do a good job. I do feel like I am doing a good job. I feel I don't really have too many moments of, oh, my gosh, like I'm terrible even like obviously there's moments but like in terms of like long periods of that so I feel like I'm more confident I'm definitely softer more patient because I was so impatient I'm still fairly impatient but a lot more patient and discovering new sides of myself that I didn't know were there before like being able to really hold space for emotions. I think it's interesting because there's parts of me that have developed and sort of grown and I've discovered, but I don't believe that they were never there before. I think Mm -hmm. it's just having the opportunity to really bring those parts out of me and let them shine. And I think it's like, yeah, because before you're a mother, you might not necessarily need to or have the opportunity to you know show those sides of yourself Mm. like that sort of empathy and being able to be that nurturer it's interesting because with my children I feel like I am able to really give them that space to feel it and do all the things that I said that I wanted to do before I became a mother and what I just what I was talking about before and I think that I'm able to do that for other people too, not just my children, like my husband and, you know, friends. It sort of brings out these sides that it just, I'm not as good with my words tonight. I'm sorry. No, I know. I get what you're saying. You you had Mm. these, this aptitude or these skills before, but you are being provided with, and you know, whether or not you take that as a good thing day to it varies day to day I'm sure but you're provided with these opportunities to use those skills and it's not like you said 
Yeah, I get, get what you mean. It's not just for your children. If you're working on acknowledging feelings for your three-year-old is expressing her feelings very loudly and you're, you're working really hard to acknowledge those feelings, you're also able to, that's also able to translate into other parts of your life and other relationships. And I think mm. it's, yeah, it's absolutely, it's, they're just like those skills are being, being amplified. I know exactly what you mean. I've never actually really thought of it like that, but mm. as soon as you said it, I'm just like, yeah, absolutely. It's not like the minute you give birth or the minute you get pregnant, you're like, okay, now I have all these skills. Now I'm really, really good at nurturing. It's just (laughs) these things that are developed over time and also kind of demanded of you at certain points as well. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like I was really impulsive and I still am impulsive in a lot of ways. But I think, like I was sort of saying, it just motherhood really softens those traits that aren't necessarily conducive to mothering. And in a good way, not necessarily taking away from like not losing, like obviously you do have a loss of identity in a lot of ways. But for me, I think that the parts of me that were good parts, it's really amplified, like you said, and the parts that potentially could have been toned down (laughs) (laughs) only just to serve me and to make me a better version of myself. What has been one of the most rewarding parts of your motherhood journey? So this time around, obviously, having had a home birth, something I discovered about myself, especially second time around, is that confidence that second time motherhood brings, it seeps into so many other parts of myself in terms of I saw that there was a home birth meetup when Remy was like three or four months old. And prior to this, prior to having Remy, I would not have had the confidence to like just put myself out there at all. Like I'm not necessarily a shy person. I'm actually quite extroverted. Like I really get a lot of energy from being around other people. I think a lot of mums can relate. It's like doesn't necessarily feel natural to like always just go out and put yourself out there and be like, I'm just going to show up to this meeting. I don't know anyone and just hope for the best. But I saw this come up and I thought, you know what, like I'm just going to go. And I went and I met Caitlin there who has had such an impact on so many parts of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think back to that time when I was three months postpartum and navigating everything and like in the thick of it and think like, I just am so grateful that I really put myself out there and just kind of had the confidence to to go to this event or this meetup at a cafe. And ever since then, I have not missed a meeting. So every month I go to these home birth meetups and then it's just progressed from there. I started going to another one. So I go to two a month now and I just really can't recommend enough to new mums having some kind of mother's group or some kind of face-to-face meetup where you can talk to other mums and see other people with their kids and like it kind of goes back to that community thing it really feels like reclaiming that community have even if it's just like for a while there with Caitlin and I was just the two of us for a while there Mm -hmm. and yet it just if you go every month or every week or whatever it is if you are consistent with that kind of thing and kind of like it make it a non-negotiable it just changes your life and the friendships you create, I mean, you hear people say, oh, I still am friends with my mum's group friends like 15, 20 years in the future. Because I think that real like solidarity that you experience mm. when you're all of you in the thick of it and you're all just there supporting each other. And like that community has just been so beautiful, so supportive. 
I just want to shout it from the rooftops because it just really changed so many things for me. I was able to talk about stuff that you just is off limits with so many other people. Um, you know, like be able to talk about breastfeeding struggles or like, you know, having kids the same age and going through some of the similar challenges and then having people like having other kids that your kids can become friends with. And even if you don't necessarily click with the people perfectly, having somewhere that you can take your kids on a regular basis where you know that they'll be able to play with other kids and you're not putting this pressure on yourself to constantly entertain them. It gave me something to look forward to, which was, yeah, huge game changer. And it just grew from there because it's like that confidence that it creates in you to go, oh, I really put myself out there and it really paid off. Maybe I should be putting myself out there in other ways. It, as I said, changed my life. Caitlin is the president of Home Birth New South Wales. So she recruited me to the committee. <laughs> and so I'm part of that. And I've just completely immersed myself in the birth world. And I'm now a birth and postpartum daughter. It's just like completely opened me up. And I, I have to say, yes, I did have the home birth and I was part of that community, but it's all just come from going to that first home birth meetup. And it doesn't have to be a home birth one. It can be any kind of regular group with other mums that have kids around the same age. Yeah. It made mm. such a difference to this That's postpartum. Beautiful. It was like, yeah, it was completely different. Just having even just once a month something to look forward to, to take my kids to and, and not be judged and be able to say, I need to go to the toilet. Can you just like watch my kids for two minutes and things like that? Like it really is a little community. Yeah. Can't recommend that enough. <laughs> Definitely be the most rewarding part. I mean, the kids are great, but. That... <laughs> That's really nice. What is something you do for yourself separate to mothering? Mm. <laughs> what indeed I well at the moment um I am really focused on my doula training and <laughs> this sounds so funny like so nerdy I'm really focused on my doula training and building up my business so um doing my like marketing collateral building my website and it's just been like this real passion project that's going to be a business or is a business and also just doing the work for home birth new south wales and so it's still in birth but it really feeds me obviously the podcast is huge mm. and so i think having these projects that i can really immerse myself in and i'm a bit of like one of those people that has like that hyper focus you know obsession and so with my like my doula with my doula stuff I'm like I need to get this done like I need <laughs> to get this out there I'm so like you know like it, it has to be done that's something but other than that I think I really just try to make a big effort and I guess this kind of goes back to what I was saying with the putting yourself out there is I make a big effort to take time out for me and and hang out with friends like I said I get so much energy from being around other people Obviously, like I love some alone time, but I feel like that's kind of changed after becoming a mother. It's like I get more out of being around friends and being kind of kid free for a night and going out to dinner, going out for drinks. And I don't do it as often as I would like to, but I think it's important if you can to really invest that time to like 
actually make it a non-negotiable. It's something that I think people can sort of say, oh, like, I don't really need that or oh, like, I can't mm. organize that. But it's like, for me, I like really make it a priority and just organize it and just say, this is happening and make it happen really. Mm. And just um, however, whatever I need to do to make it happen. Because yeah, it makes me a better mom because I come back because I miss my kids, of course, when I'm out and stuff. And then I come back, it's like starting fresh again, I think. Mm. <laughs> If you could go back to visit your maiden self, what advice would you give her? This is kind of advice for anyone, not just my maiden self. This is something that I would just, I, I and I do talk about, is obviously what we talked about before, which is trust your intuition, which I think is really hard to just tell someone. Like we said, like you can't just say to someone, trust your intuition. It's the same way we say to women in the VBAC group what should I do? I'll just trust your gut and just make the decisions you want to. Cause it's like, well, yes, but it's, we're not in a vacuum. There's so much context to that, that really can influence that. So it's like, whatever you can do to tap into that intuition, even if it is in like little small ways, and then it can build and your confidence can build and you can feel like, oh, that really worked out for me. You know, what else can I, I do with that? Because that's really something that I think is like completely littered throughout my whole story is like that disconnection from intuition and how if I had just kept coming back to that, things would have been so much easier and more positive and more joyful. So definitely that would be something I would say. And invest in postpartum. When you think about the other side of birth, postpartum doesn't just happen automatically. If you have a really good birth, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have this amazing postpartum and vice versa. And so I feel like not just necessarily investing money, but investing time and really considering like, what do you want it to look like? You know, um, there's a whole bunch of really great books that are about postpartum and what other cultures do. And this westernized modern idea of what postpartum is, is like so fucked up. Like don't prescribe to just what you think it's supposed to look like from the media or from what your friends and family have done, like the bounce back culture, like all that stuff. It's like really think about what you want and consider all options. You know, if it's a postpartum doula, if it is, you know, getting really real with your immediate family and saying, you cannot come over for two weeks, four weeks, whatever it is, like, sorry, you know, and and mm. not worrying about what people think. The best thing for the baby is for the mother to be well and nurtured and nourished and feeling good in herself. So like, keep that in mind, I think. So that's like kind of what I said, that intuition thing is really hard to tap into sometimes. Mm. But yeah, like if you can have some kind of plan prior about what postpartum is like really set in stone and just say, this is non-negotiable, like I'm not going anywhere or I am going somewhere, like this is what I really want to do. But really, really considering that what is right for you, I think it's just as important as birth. Just one other one I would say is like just really try and look into what breastfeeding looks like and what normal newborn breastfeeding behavior looks like and go to meetups in pregnancy, watch people breastfeed. Cause I didn't, I didn't do that in pregnancy. And I think that would have been so valuable to have gone to a mum's group or a, you know, a home birth group or whatever it was, VBAC group in pregnancy to watch new mums. And I know I'm pretty sure Rhea Dempsey talks about having run these in like the seventies and stuff where she used to do birth education and then she would bring some of her graduated, you know, mums who had had the baby in and like they would be breastfeeding and they would, they would have a new baby and like let these pregnant couples see 
what it actually looks like Mm. because like I said before it just isn't necessarily something we see and even if we do see it's it's a certain way we're not seeing like a broad spectrum of what it can look like and so that's something that I would definitely recommend is like even if it's not just education even if it is putting yourself out there with a bunch of other people that are doing it so that you can just observe and see Mm. what it looks like and hear what they have to say and and hear people's stories because as we know, stories are just, they're the way that we learn and connect to each other and they're the best educational resource that you can get, in my mm. opinion. <laughs> yep, super powerful. Thank you so much for doing this, Georgia. I really appreciate no, you taking the time you on so much for nights. having me. <laughs> okay, well, we did it. <laughs> I'm so sorry I've gone on so many tangents. No, I love absolute- it. You've been listening to The Motherwhelm, where we celebrate honest, unfiltered stories of motherhood. If today's episode resonated with you, I would love for you to join our community over on Instagram under the handle at the.motherwhelm. This is where you can find updates and behind-the-scenes content and share your own unique journey using the hashtag motherwhelmmoments. To keep these powerful conversations going, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with fellow mums who might find solace, laughter or inspiration in these stories. Until next time, you'll be listening to the Mellow Perfect. Beautiful job. Thank you, my darling.